Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright, here with my co-host Carrie Plitt. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Octavia. This feels really weird. It feels very weird. But I like it. Yeah, we flip reversed it. We thought we'd try and spice things up a little for this, our first ever mini mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So I'm driving the bus, which is a very frightening thought. <laughs> I'm... I've got my seatbelt on, but feeling very confident. She's my, my best co-pilot. Um, so welcome to our regular listeners and anyone who's recently discovered us. Uh, this is our first ever mini-sode, as I said, and we've wanted to bring you all more literary friction for a while. In an ideal world, we'd put out twice the number of shows a year. But unfortunately, with our other work commitments, we can't manage all of that reading. Um, so... Carrie, over to you. Yeah, so we're getting this. Um, We thought we would follow the lead of some of our other favorite podcasts and put out a little mini-sode between full shows where we'll have a more informal chat about books and anything else that comes up and also recommend any other cultural things that have filled us with joy with the usual musical interludes chosen by Eddie. Yeah, and I'm going to be driving very wobblily, so... (laughs) please belt up Um, and if you're really lucky you might even get some more insights into Carrie's illustrious sporting career yes which I apparently love to talk about Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, but but basically the format that we're going with today and that we think we might continue on with I mean please give us feedback is that we'll start by um, asking a question related to books today we're going to be talking about a book that we hated And then um, we will be recommending at least one other cultural thing besides books. Um, So if you do have a question for us related to books, we would really love to answer it. Yeah, so send it to litfriction at gmail.com. Did you see how she just carefully grabbed the steering wheel there? <laughs> no, I loved it. That was even in it. the script. I'm sorry. <laughs> it felt so good to me. I Listen, I think I was born to be a passenger, baby. But we'll, we'll, we'll keep going. We'll keep going. I do not say that about yourself. <laughs> you are a driver. I am a driver. Through and through. So um, we'll be back in a minute with uh, some chat about books that we hate. So welcome back to Literary Friction, the mini-sode. We have often joked about how the show is called Literary Friction and there is obviously plenty of literary going down, but it's pretty light on the friction um, because, you know, you and I tend to be able to see each other's perspectives pretty easily and don't disagree actually on a huge amount. No. Um, But we thought we'd try something that might bring a little bit more fire into the room and explore the idea of hating books. Can you... Name a book that you hated, Carrie Plitt. Yeah, so I'm going to have a really long preamble to this, which is that (laughs) I found it really difficult. um, And I think there are a few reasons for that. One of which is that um, I think, which is a fault of mine, which is I'm not a super adventurous reader. Um, I have to read so often for work and also for the show that when... I do read for pleasure. I usually pick something that has been recommended to me by a number of different people and sort of falls within the camp of things I'm interested in. So I would think that the books that I would quote unquote hate would probably fall outside of those categories. I also, I don't like dissing authors and I think it's because I work in publishing and it's partially that I'm like afraid to do so. But it's also that I see how hard authors work and especially authors who are writing today. I just don't see the point of taking down somebody when I know how hard they work and how personal writing is and how I just don't, you know, we, the book industry is not like a huge thriving industry. And I, I, 
I often feel that I would rather build somebody up and just not say something when I didn't like something. So it's really hard for me to actually admit that I don't like things, at, you know, at least in sort of um, a public forum. At least on tape. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also I just am not the kind of person who hates things. Um, and again, that sounds quite pompous. No, but no, it's true. You're a very measured personality. I try to see the the good in all things, you even do. those that, that frustrate me. So this was hard for me to think about. Um, Challenge is good, baby. But I tried to come at it from a slightly different angle, which is um, not necessarily things I hated, but things I just didn't understand. Um, and things I didn't understand because they had been critically acclaimed or are classics, but just did nothing for me. Um, and sort of trying to investigate why that is. So first, um, in the classics category, the author I could never get on board with is Charles Dickens. <laughs> Just yeah. never. Um, and I, I, I know that's not that controversial. There are plenty of people who don't understand Charles Dickens. There's some real friction happening over yeah. here, guys. <laughs> oh, oh, whoa. Um, his books are too long. They have too many characters. There is all this description that is so extraneous <laughs> and so uninteresting to me. And I just find it really tedious to read his books. And I know that there are like some sort of commentary on society, but that gets lost for me every time. You heard it here first. Carrie Plitt, Charles Dickens is boring. Yes. <laughs> what, what do, you, do you feel that way? No, I I'm just teasing you because it's I love hearing you try and be mean about something <laughs> it gives me such joy because I'm very different from you in that like I have very strong visceral reactions to things um I agree though what you say about about dissing authors and I also agree that I think that sometimes the most powerful form of criticism is almost a mission especially in what we're doing we have 12 shows a year we want to talk about books that we've loved and we want to talk to authors who we think are doing great work we're not interested in getting someone on to shred them why would we do that you know and, and I do think that like a world with more empathy in it is a better place to be however with reading as a reader especially when I'm divorced from my kind of professional reading hat um, I have very strong reactions to things and sometimes it surprises me how like much in the guts it can get me um, Dickens has never got me in the guts like that I've never loathed him in the way that I loathe some writing but he is fucking boring. <laughs> and, um, oh, I was hoping you'd disagree with me. I kind of do in some ways. I think I think that I think that a lot of the reasons that people find Dickens boring has a lot to do with when Dickens comes to them and how. So I've only read Dickens when I was at school because I had to for school. So these books were massive. I didn't have very long. I was more interested in being in the pub with my friends. So it was like this this pain in the butt. And actually, the way that it was taught was it wasn't necessarily made um, particularly relevant. And I think that that's the way to make people excited about Dickens. Not that I'm particularly invested in doing so because I think that canon is old and dead and not that interesting anymore. Ooh, ha. controversial. <laughs> I probably ha, disagree whatever. with you there. Do you? Uh, interestingly. Oh, yeah. Bring, yeah, go but, on, bring that, bring that over. Well, I just, I think canons are important. I would never force anyone to read books. And I think there's a balance to be struck between new things that are doing interesting things that or or things that have been sort of resurrected that haven't been considered a part of the canon but I also think it's important to understand what Dickens is because it's been so influential on so many of the writers working today I think that's a very good point my relationship to the canon is complex because I see it as a stick to beat people with in terms of a historical dominance of a particular kind of writing I'm not saying no one should read Dickens anymore I'm saying we should read Dickens from within the framework of where we're looking at things today and not give him that much space. Like it's it's the preamble to what's really important 
in terms of looking forward. But, you know, yeah, I, can I guess be... I don't disagree with that. Yeah. No. <laughs> Darn <laughs> it. I got you over. <laughs> I think also I, 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 I've never been a particularly historical facing person. I'm very, very interested in what's coming next and what's happening right now. But we're not here to, to dissect history as a concept. What I wanted to say about Dickens and one of the things that I would bring out kind of for him is that there are some characters that I've encountered in Dickens that I still think of and I still meet. I feel like I meet Uriah Heep way more than I want to. And he's a creepy bastard of an oleaginous figure. Which book is he No, in? don't ask me that because I can't remember. <laughs> but this is the thing. I don't think it's one I've read. So no, I think, is it David Copperfield? I can't remember. Um, but this is the thing about Dickens, again, for me, is that sometimes the characters come and live free from their narratives because there is something he does that is this exquisite um, he gets right to the essence of a person and I think he does what he does very well is understanding how the essence of a person and their physicality kind of come together like Magwitch is a character I think about all the time Estella I think about I see her I meet her unfortunately these women trapped by uh, social constructs of femininity I see them all the time and I want to liberate them because I'm a colonizer anyway that's the, a way that he lives for me still but I will tell you right here and now I will never read a Dickens book ever again mm. and that's a great freeing liberating thought i use them to uh prop doors open in my house <laughs> <laughs> that's not actually true bam. Uh, <laughs> bam uh do you have a book you want to talk about that you hated i d well sort of i mean for me like i said i really agree with you about not dissing authors working today on the whole because writing is hard i write also and uh, I think also there is that sense of living a little bit in fear of stating your powerful hates on the radio. And actually, I'm very happy to come hard for th things. But I, f I do find being in that oppositional space a little bit more complicated. And I think that that is not free from gendered expectations and the way that women often do themselves down or feel nervous to come out. However, <laughs> there is one author writing today who I have absolutely no problem expressing my distaste for, and that's Karl Ulrich Nasgard. I just, I, I, I had such a visceral reaction to his writing when I first read it that I, I wanted to throw the book across the room. And, you know, this says a lot more about me than it does about him or his writing talent. I wouldn't argue that he's a talented author. Um, I wouldn't argue against that fact. But I just... I have such an enormous problem with the the whole project of it and the way it's been received and the way that people talk about it um, makes me sad about where we are in society right now. And it makes me sad about what people are willing to elevate in place of looking at other narratives and other voices. Um, so, you know, that and that that is a hill I'm willing to die on. Sorry, Carl, not that you give a fuck, but um I, 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 I just find the fact of it depressing. I don't think I would have found it so depressing if it was 50 years ago, but it's the fact that this is a voice that is thriving in the contemporary climate that makes me so depressed, like so goddamn depressed. Yeah, I mean, I I am interested in Asgard. I think some of his writing is, is truly awful. And actually on a sentence by sentence level, if you just, you know, you could take any of his books and take most of the sentences from his books and be and, and show it them to somebody and they'd be like, who is this person? Why are they being elevated as a as a literary genius? But there is something, especially the the My Struggle series, which I will admit I haven't read the whole thing, but um and there are passages of that that I really hated, but it's also it is sort of mesmerizing in a way that I'm interested in. And so I don't regret reading those books. This sort of the way he stretches out experiences so that you're almost living them in real time um, in a way that I haven't really encountered 
other writers able to do? I just didn't find them mesmerizing at all. I found them unbelievably self-important and incredibly boring. And I was just like, this is not 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 an, a consciousness I'm interested in inhabiting even a tiny bit. But I do know that it, they also profoundly spoke to some people. And some of my male friends in particular really loved them and felt represented in them and all of that. And I don't believe in denying anyone that experience. You know, so, so when I say I hate them and I'm not interested in him, I'm not saying burn the witch and take them out of the library at all. But just for me, they that had such a visceral reaction against them. Um, but, you know, th- these days, for similar reasons to you, I I don't read that many books that I hate. If I'm hating a book, I stop reading it. Mm. Life's too short. Um, And also there's just too much wonderful literature out there to read that we never have time to experience. So I just think, honestly, my philosophy of reading has changed because I'm no longer under the obligation of an institution (laughs) to read a pile of books and a reading list because there's this wonderful autonomy and freedom. So yeah, you know, the other thing I wanted to ask you though on the subject of ethics is have you ever experienced a kind of retroactive hatred of a book? Um, Because so much of, of the literature canon we get fed as young teenagers in particular now looks incredibly problematic, right? When looked at from the contemporary perspective. And I think if you're growing in political awareness as you age, which hopefully everyone is in one form or another, whether they're actively seeking to or just absorbing it. I mean, I I don't think that's true very sadly, but that's what I hope for, for humanity. Um, Then you start to see violence in places you didn't see it before. And as you challenge your own privileges, you start to see the ways that they've been reinforced by particularly popular culture, literature. Um, So, you know, I found myself like I found myself making a reference to Man Friday, that character from Robinson Crusoe the other day. Haven't thought about that book or that character for a really long time. And suddenly I was like, oh, fuck, that's I mean, that's that's a it's a terrible thing. (laughs) That's a terrible book, what it's doing. And I remember really enjoying it when I was a kid and I read it. But, you know, these things happen. These characters seep into our, our consciousness and we don't examine them critically ever again they become fabulous for us you know literally like a a fable of our reality and I think it's interesting to think about the way those archetypes might then influence how we behave without us really realizing I think that's a really great question partially because we live in an age right now where I think um there is a real cultural license to re-evaluate art from the past and not Well, I mean, I think there's a real argument going on about whether because people were writing in different times than our own, they should be given a pass for their views that we now see as incredibly outdated. Yeah, and I think that has also caused me to go back to a lot of the things that I revered, especially as a sort of like um, late teenager, early 20-year-old, at a time when I was very invested in literature with a capital L, and very invested in being someone who boys who liked literature with a capital L would think was cool, which I'm very happy to admit now. But it's like writers who I profess to have a deep and profound love for, I now see as writers who I didn't question because I thought they were what you had to like if you were um, somebody who liked great books. And I, I think David Foster Wallace is is like the sort of prime example of that for me. I read Infinite Jest and I was like, yeah, Infinite Jest is like the best book ever written. And and I don't think it's a, I, you know, I don't think I retroactively hate it, but I look back at it and I'm like, okay, I think that's a great book, but actually really isn't the kind of book that I like. And, <laughs> and like, I, and I would be interested to read it now and see if I even um, think it's good or like, think it would be something that I would recommend to other people because I think I was reading it with 
the male gaze upon me. Yeah, my God, absolutely. And also you you, you engage with those, whatever that um, tribal identity that you're trying to participate in through what you're consuming is, you're reading these things as symbols. And so you're, you're, what's standing between you and the artifact is also the symbol of what it suggests and what it signifies for you. I mean, like, as you know, I've tried to read Infinite Jest a thousand times and I just can't get on board with it yeah. at all. And I think there are things about it that are really interesting and really great, but the weight of this masculine ego is just it's too much for me I love his essay writing though and I you know again I would never argue that he's not a fantastic writer or he wasn't doing really interesting things but there's so much else going on there that oh but for me it's it's funny that you say that the boys who are interested in literature I was so fascinated by transgression at that stage of my life and I was the signifiers that I was um attaching to were all about transgressive thought transgressive behavior so my just cooler than me basically (laughs) (laughs) no just i mean more of a fuck up babe come on be real but i think that like um you know when i think about the the texts that were that for me they were you know like the the critical theory of georges bataille who was a sort of a surrealist thinker whose work is and an eroticist his work is still really interesting but i read it now and i'm like oh boy that's pretty misogynist there pal um you know and 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 very very problematic um and i remember for my early in in my phd research reading 120 days of sodom by the marquis de sade and and you know really wanting to find it brilliant and finding it ultimately immensely boring <laughs> it's a very boring book in some some ways and there, are, there it's doing interesting things and it's transgression and I think it's a, an interesting cultural artifact blah 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 but actually yeah with bit with a bit more distance a bit more maturity and a bit more self-confidence frankly and like that thing that happens as you age where you settle into who you actually are and you let go of all these desired selves that you thought you wanted to try on for size and did right it's a it's a, a rite of passage and then you can look at the things you over attached to and you over represented yourself via and be like oh my god oh my god um but totally. i don't retroactively hate them because also i think you are always going to have a nostalgic attachment to those things because of what they served for you right okay great so we've landed in a place where we don't really hate that many books i hate books a bit more than you we agree with each other we kind of agree with each other the studio is burning down guys because the friction (laughs) is so intense um so we'll be back in a minute with our cultural recommendations Hello and welcome back to Literary Friction. I, the temptation to do an imitation of you <laughs> when I do that. Do it. It's massive. I can Hello take it. and welcome to Literary Friction. That's that's pretty good. Was actually. it good? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm Octavia Bright, back here with my wonderful co-host Carrie Plitt. And this is the last section of our first ever minisode. Um, here we are back with our cultural recommendations. Um, books are wonderful. We love books. You love books. Everyone knows books are great. But, you know, everyone also needs a break from reading <laughs> desperately at times. So Carrie and I wanted to talk about other things that we've done um, that we've loved. So Carrie, what have you done or seen recently that got you excited? Yes. So first of all, you're much more complimentary in your introductions, which I might take a um, page <laughs> from your book next time. So thank you for calling me wonderful. Um, Second of all, yeah, I'm so excited to talk about other cultural stuff because I feel like we always 
have to rein ourselves in, in some ways, especially when we're talking about the wider theme, because these things are so blurred into films and art. And, you know, it's not books aren't don't exist in a hermetic world just with other books. So um, this seems hopefully like a natural extension of the things we talk about on the show. Um, so getting down to sorry I did it again <laughs> sorry <laughs> I love it I love it it's, it's no it's liberating for me no I just can't relinquish control and it's <laughs> something I need to work on okay um so over the weekend I saw the favorite um which I suspect a lot of you will have seen by this point but I wanted to recommend it anyway because I just thought it was fabulous and also it was just such a fun experience to see in the theater I also um tricked Eddie into seeing it because he is like a staunch Republican in the British sense um and doesn't usually want to see films about the monarchy so I didn't tell him what it was about and then we went Ooh, to go see bitch. it but then at the end he was like actually that's exactly the kind of film that I want to see about the monarchy because it treats them as like burbling idiots it sends them up yeah yeah, yeah. I'm going to see it tonight so oh. don't spoil it for me Okay, I won't spoil it, but um, in, in case you don't know, it's the story of Queen Anne's court in the early 1700s and the two women competing for her love. The acting is fantastic. Olivia Coleman is just is just brilliant as Queen Anne. She's she's both like luminous and disgusting and funny and serious. She just occupies so many different shades. You know, there are some actors who disappear into a role, and there are some actors who are, are sort of themselves but different. And I feel like. Olivia Coleman is in the latter category. She's so Olivia Coleman, but she's also somehow Queen Anne at the same time. Um, yeah, she's a fantastic actor. Yeah, and this was a woman who suffered a lot. She lost 17 children, oh, which shit. I didn't know until I watched this movie. That's and absolutely wild. Yeah, and um, she had terrible gout. She was in pain for most of her life, and and she gets at that in in a really interesting way. Also, that the two other women are are fantastic and even though it's directed by a man the greek director yorgos lanthimos who also directed films like the lobster dog tooth it's a story about women and it feels like a story sort of for women in some ways as well which i absolutely loved and it also just sent me down a really deep rabbit hole of learning about the history of this period which i didn't know that much about um which is sort of endlessly fascinating i mean even reading like the wikipedia page about queen anne is insane <laughs> and also i live near blenheim palace and that sort of comes into the film and i started reading about the history of blenheim palace and there are all these like crazy uh, facts like um blenheim palace was saved because it was in total disrepair and in the early 1900s, the owner was forced into a marriage with an American heiress who he like hated. It was not a love oh, match. God. They they really didn't like each other. But her family basically restored Blenheim Palace. And this happened a lot during that period. And I, I don't know. I would just recommend reading Wikipedia and also <laughs> and also watching The Favourite. You're making me not hate history, Carrie. That's a... That's a good. Im yeah. That's a. That's a good. I'll keep chipping away. Please do. <laughs> no, I really can't wait to see it. I'm also just excited to see. Yeah, three fantastic women actors having a riot on screen. Yeah, it, no. that that is a much shorter, <laughs> perfect recommendation <laughs> of this movie of something that I haven't seen yet. Um, I'm also going to recommend a movie. I wanted to talk about this exhibition I went to, Modern Couples at the Barbican, but it's going to be off by the time this plays out, so that feels a little bit pointless. However, if any of you went and want to talk about it, email me because I have things to say. But uh, on Monday, I went to see a movie that filled me with so much joy. It's called Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Yes, I want to see this. It's so great. It's so great. 
I left the cinema so overstimulated. I was basically cross-eyed and like couldn't walk <laughs> because it's an assault on your consciousness in some amazing ways. And listen, I'm not actually a huge animation fan, um, but my boyfriend is into it, so we went, and I I'm so glad I saw it. Um, it was one of the most uh, kind of creatively energizing things I've seen for such a long time. It's so beautiful, actually, the levels of animation that's going on. And uh, you know, he was explaining to me the different methods and things that create different explanations of movement I can't explain it properly I need to talk to someone who knows about these things it's called like two-step or something but it was also just incredibly cool to see Brooklyn animated and animated so faithfully I spent three months living there and it made me so nostalgic for it but in a really lovely way and there was also an immense freedom of watching a superhero movie and listen I actually I really enjoy a lot of superhero movies but there was something about watching an animated one that made me realize you're you're disbelief is suspended immediately because you're in an animated universe and so it's so much easier to go along with completely absurd things like it was amazing to have my critical faculties just basically checked out for the entire experience um and it felt a bit like being on a roller coaster or on a you know on a theme ground ride um theme ground <laughs> theme park you see I, i'm overstimulated even talking about it also the soundtrack is just completely banging and while it's it's obviously not a perfect piece of work, the body and gender politics could use some pretty intense work. Um, the women in it are small characters, uh, although they're not completely two-dimensional, so that's something. Um, but it, it was actually also really reassuring to see a superhero movie that knowingly addresses some of the problematic elements of the genre, like paternalism and some of the racial dynamics. You know, the, the protagonist of this is a kid called Miles Morales, who's a black Latino kid growing up in Brooklyn, rather than... Um, and the relationship he has with Peter Parker is drawn out in a way that's very sort of self-critical and interesting. And yeah, like I said, the animation was just virtuosic for me. And I'm a complete layperson, so maybe extra easy to impress, but it did impress me. <laughs> um, so yeah, go see it. Go see it. Go see it. Cool. I will go see it. I do not like superhero movies, although I'll go watch them in, in the cinema. Um, but this sounds like it's different. It's definitely it's different. Good. And it makes it... it it kind of calls you to reflect on the problems of superhero movies as a genre in a more general way. It's not interested in nation building in the same way. I like self-conscious works of art, so that sounds right at my own. <laughs> yeah, you'll be into it. We hope you enjoyed our first minisode. That's all the time we have for today. Big thanks to Paula at NTS and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. And if you do have any questions you want us to answer on the minisode, please, please, please email us. We'd yeah, love to hear your questions. Up. We would love to talk to you. We'll be back in two weeks with a full hour show featuring the usual author interview. And until then, I am Octavia Bright with Carrie Plitt as my very controlling co-pilot. <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> and this is Literary Friction, the minisode.